So, uh, hello everyone, welcome to another edition of uh, EPIPS. Uh, my name is Sherry Onakvi, I'm uh, a trainee at the Evelina. Uh, I'm really pleased to have uh, with me today uh, Associate Professor Sebastian King, um, who is a neonatal and paediatric surgeon at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, uh, and the Director of the Colorectal and Pelvic Reconstruction Service uh, at that hospital. Um, hi Sebastian, how are you? Shares, it's great to see you. We, we miss you. We wish you were back in Melbourne. The feeling is mutual. <laughs> um, so, Sebastian, we're, we're going to talk today about um, anorectal malformations um, from the point of view uh, of our viva examination. Uh, and um, the, the, the structure of our session will be to go through some cases um, and then to have uh, a bit of a conversation about uh, bowel management in the post-operative phase. Um, sure. so, so I'm going to start with a with a case. So um, a peripheral neonatal unit has just called you um, to tell you that they've got a 24-hour-old baby um, and they're concerned because he's not passed meconium and the on-call neonatal registrar has had a look at the perineum and has told you that the anus is not present. Um, what history do you want to know about the baby and what actions would you ask the re referring team to perform? Well, Shez, the most important thing I think you said was that it's a boy. You've, you've said it's he, so we've uh, recognised that. And that's important because sometimes uh, it can be um, complicated. You know, that you will often, or not often, but sometimes get referred a patient with a anorectal malformation yeah, where they don't quite know what the gender is, yeah. you know, with the associated DSD. But in this setting, if we're going to take the simple case that we know that it's a boy, from the history that I'd want to know, I'd go back and want to know what they knew antenatally. Yeah. Um, and as you're aware, it's very uncommon for anorectal malformations, particularly in boys, to be diagnosed antenatally. But what I am interested in is what are the associated anomalies that might have been diagnosed. So do we know whether are there are any vertebral anomalies? Do we know whether are there are any cardiac anomalies? Do we know, um, you know, was there significant polyhydramnios? Yeah. So is there a risk that this child's got esophageal atresia with associated TOF? Um, and uh, what are the kidneys doing? Yeah. Um, and, you know, will we able to see what the limbs are doing based on clinical examination? But I think that that's important to get a sense of what was known antenatally. Yeah. And then initially I want to know, is this a well or an unwell baby? So we're looking at 24 hours um, since birth. I'd expect if there's no anus present and if that's been documented that the uh, abdomen will be starting to distend. Yeah. And so I need to have a sense of how distended that is and what impact that's having on the child and any sen sense of respiratory embarrassment. And also how is this a term baby? because that's obviously going to make a difference as well. Um, and then the question about it, has there been any meconium seen? Is there? We don't expect that there's any meconium on the perineum because, the, um, yeah, as they've said, there's no anus present, but is there perineum being passed... Sorry, is there meconium being passed into the, into the nappy? Um, so is there a communication with the urinary tract? Because um, yeah. that's going to be important. Um, and... Uh, in terms of um, the general uh, state of the baby, are there any associated anomalies? Because we know that Down syndrome um, is strongly associated with anorectal malformations. So I think they're the sort of key components of the of the history from my perspective. Um, 
And then in terms of actions that I'd like the referring team to perform, yeah. um, again, just taking that vactral approach, you know, have, we been, have they excluded esophageal atresia? Have they passed the nasogastric tube without any issues? Um, uh, do they know anything about the cardiac history for the baby? Because that's going to be important as the baby's transferred to, uh, to the surgical service and what that means you know, in, the, in the coming hours. And then also, what do we know about the renal condition as the baby passed uh, urine? Um, and uh, you know, do we know that there are one or two kidneys? Um, in terms of further actions, I'd want them to place a nasogastric tube, recognising that that's not going to necessarily help with the abdominal distension, but it's not going to worse, hopefully you know, reduce the chance of worsening it. And I'd start them on antibiotics um, and then plan, to plan for a transfer as soon as possible because I think... With a baby, you know, with a boy, with no uh, opening onto the perineum at 24 hours, then every hour increases the chances of potential perforation of the dilated distal bowel. Perfect. Thanks. Okay, so so in answer to some of those questions, um, the, the neonatal team at the referring hospital are happy that there weren't any other associated anomalies on the, um, on the, on the antenatal scans. Uh, and they're happy to transfer the baby over. So the, so the baby uh, is transferred to your unit. And as you said, yes, he's a, he's a boy. Um, we've talked a lot, we've talked about a lot of this stuff from the peripheral hospital, but I'm going to ask again, how, how would you assess the baby? What, what specific features would you look for on examination? Yeah, so again, I would, um, you know, you know how I am with my structured approach. Yeah. Um, and I would take very much a general versus specific. So need to make sure you know, when that initial referral was made, was it 24 hours? How long is that delay? Where are they at in terms of their age, in terms of hours? Because that's going to be important um, and the urgency with which we need to move things. Um, but I just want to see, you know, are they generally well or unwell? What's their abdominal distension like? What's their respiratory embarrassment like? Are they are the neonatal team worried about needing to intubate this child or are they sitting there, you know, in the isolate nice and comfortable? In terms of specific features that I'd look for um, beyond the, you know, associated um, uh, syndromic abnormalities, I'd be particularly looking for abdominal distension and the extent of that distension. Um, And uh, is there a risk of impending perforation? Um, Because the child um, doesn't have an anus present, if they have passed meconium via the urethra, I am more... I'm slightly more relaxed, okay. um, but if they haven't passed um, meconium per urethrally, plus minus if they have got Down syndrome, then the risk of ARM without a associated fistula is significantly increased. Yeah. And so therefore I'm worried about um, the, the risk of impending perforation. In terms of examination of the perineum, I'd look at the perineum as well as the penis, you know, again, to make sure, is there any meconium being passed and are there any associated penile abnormalities? Is there actually, um, looking at the perineum, um, recognising that we look at these far more often than the referring hospitals, is there actually an opening associated with a bucket handle or is there a clear sort of flattening of the buttocks with no um, opening onto the perineum? So what do the buttocks look like? And what can I feel from the spine perspective as well? Recognising that it's, it's a pretty rough estimate, but again, it gives me some idea if the, if the spine is normal, if there's, if there's no opening, then you know, it might lead towards a sort of a more distal malformation. 
if the spine is grossly abnormal um, and there's no opening, then then potentially there's a more proximal fistula. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to ask about two different scenarios there. So if you were to see meconium at the at the perineum. Would that be? Would that change your further management in the in the short term compared to if um, you didn't see any meconium at the perineum uh, or that you saw meconium from the urethra? So if there's if there is meconium that's um, in the nappy, because I think that's the most likely circumstance, then then need to make sure that it's not meconium that's being spilled from the urethra down onto the perineum. Yeah. But if your first example there, where there is clear meconium onto the perineum, then there must be some form of opening. Yeah. And they're re- recognizing in boys that those are really quite uncommon. Yeah. But I, I would grab my loops. And I take some lacrimal probes and some urethral dilators, not Hagar's, but urethral dilators. And if the child was stable enough, then I would look to dilate that tract. Okay. But you know, there aren't that many cases of uh, that that works yeah. where you can actually decompress and dilate uh, appropriately. The majority of the time, they won't have that situation in the boys. Um, and there, if there is any mechanism that's been passed uh, urethrally. And at 24 plus hours, uh, I'd be preparing that child for a laparotomy and colostomy formation. Perfect. Okay. Um, so, so we are in that in that second scenario. Um, you've seen no meconium at the perineum whatsoever, um, and um, you've not seen any any meconium in the nappy either. Um, what other investigations would you order? Would you ask your neonatal team to order, and how would these affect your management uh, going forwards? So I think that there are there are some abdominal imaging. So uh, the role of the abdominal X-ray or the baby gram, um, and that gives me an idea of the extent of um, the dilatation of that distal loop and where it's sitting. Yeah. Um, Recognising it can be grossly distended and sitting up near the liver. I think that's important in terms of planning for your laparotomy and your stoma formation. Um, if they're not as distended, and we're now beyond 24 hours, so the discussion around the prone shoot-through versus the invertigram. Yeah. Um, so I think that, the again, if you think that there's the potential that there's uh, an opening right of the perineum, then the, the prone, you know, you're not going to get a better contrast study than that air sitting within the, within the bowel, the distal bowel at 24 hours. Um, but again, most of the time, you'll, this child's going to end up with a stoma. Yeah. So I don't think that that imaging is significantly going to change my management. Um, if there's been concerns antenatally from a cardiac point of view, then the child needs an urgent echo. Um, if there have been concerns from a renal perspective, um, antenatally, then they need a, a renal ultrasound. If they're past urine and there's no concerns antenatally, then the renal ultrasound can be and wait till after the laparotomy. Perfect. Um, do you use the abdominal radiograph for anything other than just to look at the bowel gas pattern or is it used for other features as well? Uh, I think it gives me an idea of what the, what the spine looks like, but it's not ideal. Sure. Um, and you can see that in the, both in the AP and in the lateral and uh, give you a sense of what the spine's like. Um, but uh, otherwise, and sometimes if you're lucky, you'll see a little bit of beaking, which might give you a sense that 
you know, is there is there a fistula as opposed yeah. to an ARM without fistula? And, and almost always the ARM without fistula will finish somewhere between 18 and 22 millimetres from the perineal edge. So if you see a sort of bulbous end, then that will give me an idea that there is no fistula. Um, but apart from that, no. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so so our, our little baby has had an echo. We're happy that that's normal. Um, and the, the plain abdominal x-ray... Um, shows fairly dilated loops of bowel throughout the abdomen. Um, and as you said, you've decided that we're going to proceed with a, with a, with a colostomy. Um, what would be your timing for performing that colostomy? Um, and what type of stoma would you perform? So in this patient, I'd want to perform the colostomy as soon as possible. Yeah, over the 24 hours, the evidence would suggest that once you get over 24 hours, your risk of perforation is significantly increased. Um, and so uh, I would be planning for a, a laparotomy, a left lower quadrant incision, delivery of the dilated uh, loop and formation of a divided colostomy. The conversation around is there a role for laparoscopy? I don't think in this patient that's appropriate. Um, because they're, they're, the likelihood is they're going to be too um, distended and your ability to create a working space uh, that's appropriate for this child, is, it, I just don't think that's the right operation for this particular situation. Yeah. So I left our quadrant laparotomy, uh, recognising that sometimes that incision, I think the mistake that people make um, uh, sometimes is that they make their incision too small um, and therefore really struggle with the delivery of the loop. And the problem is if you struggle to deliver the loop, your uh, risk of damage to the mesentery and putting a hole in the mesentery is increased yeah. and therefore your impact on the marginal artery is increased as well. So I would rather have a large incision with a safe delivery of the appropriate section of the bowel, make sure that you've got the tethering of the descending colon and that you can follow the loop down into the pelvis so that you're not uh, inadvertently bringing out a transverse colon or another section of bowel. So I would uh, so I would plan to do that um, through a left lower quadrant um, incision. The, the conversation comes around whether or not is this a divided stoma, is it a loop stoma, so colostomy. Um, I think that, you know, there's a recent meta-analysis that's looked at this and the risks and benefits of the loop versus the uh, divided stoma. Um, I think that from, in my hands, I do a divided uh, colostomy, but I don't create a significant skin bridge between the, um, between the two uh, ends of the stoma. Um, but I do um, make sure that I have washed out the distal limb uh, vigorously so that as much of that meconium is, is removed from the distal limb, it's going to make my distal colostogram, you know, in six to eight weeks' time, uh, hopefully that much more effective. Um, I think that the um, if you if the decision is to form a loop um, colostomy, uh, and there are lots of you know people who do that, but I think that's fine. I think that the uh, the dogma around um, not using the loops because of the risk of overspillage into the distal limb yeah. and the risk of urinary tract infection has probably been overstated. Yeah. Um, and so uh, as long as the, uh, in either situation, the child's going to be on prophylactic 
antibiotics up to and beyond the distal colostogram anyway. Yeah. Um, so from okay. my perspective, you know, if, if one of my colleagues forms a loop colostomy on a patient that I'm now going to subsequently manage, I'm not sitting there tut-tutting that decision. Yeah, thanks. That's, that's actually a very useful answer because it is a question that, that, that a lot of our trainees will, will want to um, have a discussion over uh, in, the, in the Viva part of the exam. So it's good to have, uh, have your opinion on that. So we've, we've made a nice divided uh, colostomy. The, actually, the only question I didn't ask you was where, where do you place your stoma? So I think that uh, what I use as my markings is I, I look at the ASIS, I look at the um, umbilicus, and I try to feel for the tip of the 12th rib yeah. with a view to trying to place it within that sort of the, the middle of that triangle. Um, I make an oblique incision. Um, and recognising that it might need to be extended in one or both directions um, and particularly seeing that loop can, as I said, can sometimes be sitting up uh, over near the liver. Um, the, the, the most important thing is to, to deliver the, that loop um, yeah. carefully um, and not, dim not damage the, the blood supply. Yeah, brilliant. Um, okay, so we now have a baby who's uh, who's got a colostomy uh, it's functioning well um two-part question first one what is your what is your timing for the for the distal colostogram uh, and as part of that what is the information that you're trying to get from it and what is the what are the instructions you're going to give your radiology department to achieve those aims yeah, okay. So from a, uh, so I plan to do my distal colostogram six to eight weeks after the child has gone home, and that's because my timing for my um, definitive repair is three months and beyond. Yeah. And so I have that. That gives me adequate time for the child to be um, at home, thriving, spending time with his parents, um, um, and and bonding appropriately gives me an opportunity to see the child with the parents um, uh, um, prior to the colostogram so that I've had an opportunity to educate them about why we're doing these investigations and also to go through some of the information that they will have invariably forgotten from when they were first in hospital. Yeah. So, um, and the information that I'm uh, aiming to achieve with the colostogram uh, and I'm relatively prescriptive, as you know, with the radiologists about this. They sometimes don't like that, but I think that we're the ones that are ordering this investigation and perhaps know more about it and why we're, why we're ordering it. Yeah. Um, but what I want to know is what is the length of distal bowel that I get to work mm -hmm. with? Uh, where is the fistula, if there is a fistula, and where does it insert? Um, and you'll also then gain some extra information in terms of what does the spine look like on both an AP and a lateral view, which might be of use later down the track. Yeah. Um, we have the luxury, and I suspect it's the same in the UK, that most of the, most of the children are having their, their definitive surgery performed at the institution where they've had their colostomy formed. Yeah. Whereas I know that our, many of our American colleagues, particularly the larger referral centres, um, the colostomy will be performed in one centre and then the definitive surgery will be performed in another. The reason why I make a point about that is that I'm less... Con I'm not... I'm, I don't dismiss it, but I'm less concerned about the length of the distal bowel because I know that my colleagues, the likelihood is that they will have performed 
and place the colostomy in the appropriate position. But it's still important because, you know, I have a recent case of a boy with a rectobladder neck fistula where although the fistula, although the, the uh, stone was formed in absolutely the right spot, the distance <laughs> of the is was uh, very limited. Right. So in terms of the instructions that I then ask for the radiology department, I, uh, what I ask for or insist upon is a metal ball bearing placed where the um, it's likely the anus would be. Yeah. I ask them to start in the AP view to give me a sense of how long that distal limb is. I ask them to move into the lateral view um, to establish um, where uh, the fistula of present is entering the urinary system. Yeah. Um, and I need to make sure that they are providing a good pressure colostogram and that they're not stopping once the uh, once they fill up to the PC line, that they go beyond that so that they are then establishing whether or not there's a fistula to the bulbar urethra, to the prostatic urethra, to the bladder neck or not present at all. Yeah. Um, just, just for, for our listeners, can you just can you just tell us what the BC or pubococcygeal line is and where it goes to and from? So the relevance of the, <coughs> of the PC line is that it's, um, if you think about where the uh, pelvic floor is sitting, that it sometimes provides resistance to the rectum. Yeah. Um, and so therefore um, the, the relevance of that is that um, if there's inadequate pressure provided that you can then get a situation on the uh, colostogram where the um, where the, the contrast sort of stops at that natural sort of pinch cock. Yeah. Um, and so by be- going beyond that, you'll then establish where the fistula is. In the occasional situation where um, you suggest, you, know, you think that there's a likelihood of a fistula that you haven't been able to demonstrate it, that it, that it can be that the distal colostogram can be married with a MCUG or a VCUG, depending yeah. on which you know, side of the Atlantic you are. Yeah. Um, and the advantage of that is that um, uh, an often, and, and that doesn't necessarily need to be performed in the same um, sitting, because often the contrast will be sitting in the distal uh, colon anyway. Yeah. Um, but the advantage for that is that you've then got a sense of where the urethra is because the catheter is sitting within the urethra and you have an ed- a sense of where the end of the rectum is in relation to that as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very useful. Thank you. Um, okay, so, so you've got your distal colostogram. Um, before I tell you what our distal colostogram showed, um, what are your considerations for the repair and how do you counsel the parents... Uh, with regard to the long-term outcomes for their baby in terms of that information? So the, the time for my definitive repair and for what we do in our service is we aim to do it at three months yeah. or five kilos of um, uh, weight. Um, and uh, And the reason for that is, one, that the child has been at home with the parents, the parents have had time to bond um, and and get their head around what they're going through and what that looks like. It's given me uh, ample opportunity to counsel the parents around what the result of the colostogram is. You know, so I've seen them before the colostogram has been performed to go through what they we've educated them on previously. It's then given me an opportunity to talk to them after the colostogram um, which then has given me a chance to say, right, this is the type of malformation that we're dealing with, um, and 
and this is what the likelihood of your child's outcomes are going to be. So um, until we've got that information from the colostogram, you know, the decision around PSARP versus LARP is obviously guarded. We don't know what type of uh, repair we're going to do. But by that stage, we will have had imaging of the sacrum, we'll have imaging of the spine, either in the form, you know, so sacrum in terms of abdominal and sacral x-rays and then spine in terms of neonatal spinal ultrasound plus minus MRI. And so depending on the type of um, anorectal malformation and what the spinal imaging shows, then that means that I'm then able to counsel the family and to think about the ARM index to bring those three components together, the type of malformation, what the sacral integrity is like and what the spine is like. Um, and, and as you're well aware, that the, the more proximal the fistula, the rectoblatinex and the rectoprostatex um, in the boy, um, more often than not are associated more, with more significant sacral and spinal anomalies, but not always. Um, and so therefore their likelihood of being able to establish um, bowel and or bladder continence is reduced. Yeah. Whereas if we have a child where we've been able to show that the spinal uh, anatomy and the and the um, and the sacral anatomy is uh, normal or near normal, that they've got a rectobulbar fistula, they won't have a perineal fistula in the situation that you've described so far, yeah. but a rectobulbar fistula, then perhaps we can be a bit more uh, optimistic about what their continence from a bowel and bladder perspective looks like. Um, just as part of that. Um... What what is the importance of having a uh, a holistic service to 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 counsel the parents and who 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 do you involve in that conversation? Um, well, you know that I think that it's essential to have um, uh, not just the surgeons having these conversations. So certainly the service that I. Uh, have set up and that we have uh, here at Children's in Melbourne um, has uh, clinical nurse consultants, uh, has stomach therapists, uh, but also has um, psychology and social work, um, which are key components, um, and particularly in the, in the neonatal period and the early, early infancy for the parents and providing that support um, around the adjustment to diagnosis. You know, again, as you know, these are the vast majority of these children are diagnosed postnatally. Um, and so they've gone from thinking that their child is completely fine based on the multiple ultrasounds they've had antenatally to all of a sudden being told that their child's got a, uh, a long-term, lifelong condition. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, in terms of, you know, my, I see my role as to provide the medical information, the surgical information and the, and the pastoral care for the family, but also recognise that my skill set needs to be augmented by the social work and the psychologists, but also our CNCs and stable therapy who will all bring their own expertise to the care of the family. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it sounds like they're an essential part of, of, of that service. Um, okay, so our distal colostogram has, sh- has shown that our, our baby has a uh, rectobulbar fistula. Can you just briefly talk about the steps of the definitive procedure that you could have performed for this baby? Yep. So I think that the, um, like any operation, you have to think about what are the, what are the key components. And, and, and many of them sort of, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about esophageal atresia repair or diaphragmatic hernia repair or, uh, um, or anorectal malformation repair. 
But for a recto bulba, what I'm thinking about is I want to create a tension-free repair, and that's really important. And I'll come back to how you you ensure that you need to make sure that the um, the neo anus that you're creating or that I'm creating is appropriately positioned and sized, yeah. and um, and that I create no damage to associated structures. Yeah. And so um, with that in mind, um, the recto-bulbar approach, PSARP uh, rather than LARP, dissection down onto the, onto the posterior wall of the rectum, uh, recognising that should be the first structure, you know, the first major structure that you encounter uh, if you've placed your incision appropriately and that I've uh, by this stage already done my stimulation and made sure that I've marked appropriately where the maximal contraction is for the neo-anus. But then opening the neo-rectum, sorry, opening the rectum in the posterior aspect to then demonstrate um, where the fistula is using lacrimal probes to demonstrate where the fistula from the rectum into the bulbar urethra is and then dissecting that free, um, uh, so circumcising around where the... um, where the fistula is and then closing that fistula in layers. And then the most um, important part in a way um, long-term is to make sure that the dissection of the rectum now off the posterior urethra, once you've separated and and closed the fistula, gives you adequate length to be able to bring the the rectum down to create the neo-anus. I think the mistake that people do is that they're not... They're not in the right plane, um, so they're either too deep onto the rectum, so they devascularize the rectum, or they're too superficial, which means that they're onto the posterior urethra. And because of the cautiousness um, <coughs> or caution around that uh, dissection means that often the dissection isn't as extensive as it should be. When I do a recto-bulbar dissection, I... Imagine that I'm going to have to do three to four centimetres of dissection at least yeah. to be able to provide adequate mobility to then bring the rectum down to create the neo-anus you know, with attention-free repair. Perfect. Um, have, have you got any tips and tricks for how you would um, perform that mobilisation and how you would um, separate uh, the two structures from each other? Yeah, I think that the... It can be a very difficult plane to establish, um, and it's uh, one of those planes that you think that you sometimes you think you're in the right place, and then you realise that you're not. Yeah. Um, and so it's sometimes a little bit easier in the rectobulbar dissections because you know that you have to open the rectum um, to be able to establish where the fistula is. But the uh, the technique that I have been shown and that I use and teach is to um, work as much as possible down to that shiny white material that you see on the rectum yeah. and that if there's any fat, um, then you know that you're still superficial. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, I, in my mind, I think, okay, well, if I'm there, I'm not there yet yeah. um, because I know there's always extra planes. But I think that that plane is really important because um, you need to get into that plane and it's sometimes easier to establish that plane more proximally than distally. Yeah. But you need to get into that correct plane because if you're not, when you then come from the lateral planes um, on both sides into the anterior plane and start dissecting off the urethra, 
then that's where your likelihood of damage to the urethra is greatest um, because you haven't established um, the correct plane uh, on the anterior aspect of the rectum. And it also means that because people, I, I, I think that because, you know, surgeons are concerned about damage to the urethra and aren't in the correct plane, that it means that they then don't do an, um, uh, they stop their dissection prematurely. Sure. They don't create the adequate length on the rectum. And that's a major pitfall in that they can then place the rectum and create the neo-anus, but it's created under tension, which then means that over time the perineal body will break down and the rectum will pull, or the neo-anus will pull anteriorly just because the body has not been given the uh, sufficient mobility on that last part of the rectum to be able to sit comfortably. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I remember having been scrubbed with you uh, and, and there seemed to be a very definite end to that common wall when you seem to get a, 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 a much easier dissection going backwards. That, that, that seems to be something that you're looking for. Yeah, I think, and I think that that, um, that plane is, is easier superiorly or proximally, but you have to work hard um, uh, to make sure that you're in that correct plane um, distally um, so that your dissection off the urethra, particularly just proximal to where you've dissected the fistula, um, is... is um, that you're in the right plane so that you're preserving the posterior urethral wall but also making sure that you're not um, uh, invading the anterior rectal wall. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, <clears throat> having talked about what we're aiming to do, what are the, what are the sort of pitfalls of not doing that or um, what can be the complications if, if, we, if we don't um, find that plane and adequately separate the two structures from each other? Well, I think that the, um, the early post-operative complication is wound breakdown and perineal breakdown yeah. um, and, uh, um, because, and retraction of the neo-anus. Um, uh, stricturing um, is a real risk um, because of uh, not having sufficient mobilisation. And then the risk is um, with the combination of all of those is that if you then fast forward three or six months that the neo-anus is now sitting more uh, anterior than it should. Yeah. It's sitting outside the motor complex. Um, and if there's the plan mm -hmm. to do redo surgery to be able to place it in an appropriate position, that not only are you having to dissect through scar tissue um, between the anterior rectum and the posterior urethra, but you're still having to go um, uh, proximally enough to be able to get that adequate mobilisation. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, all the work that you should have done the first time around, you know, having to do it the second time around just with a greater degree of difficulty. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so message there is get it right first time. Um, yes. Okay, so <clears throat> you've done a... You've done a dissection that you're happy with. You've completed your procedure satisfactorily. You've got the patient back on the ward again. What are your What are the key components of your post-operative management um, in the immediate post-operative period, and then in the medium term, uh, in terms of starting dilatations? So the immediate term is immediate <coughs> um, post-operative period is really thinking about adequate analgesia. I think that often these children are under um, uh, analgesed. You know, it's a very uh, painful procedure. 
Um, and so I think making sure they've got adequate, uh, adequate analgesia post-operative for a number of days. Um, I maintain antibiotics for a number of days for these children as well yeah. um, because the, you know, this is a, a relatively morbid procedure. Um, but because they've got their um, uh, colostomy in situ already, then I'm happy to feed you know, quickly. Yeah. I don't find the children tend to feed on the first day of life, uh, sorry, first day of post-operatively, yeah. um, because they're just um, they're still recovering from their surgery. But certainly the following day, happy for them to start feeds uh, in whatever form that is, you know, breast milk, formula, etc. So that then they're able to um, uh, hopefully, as their analgesic requirements decrease, that they're able to be transitioned from IV to oral analgesia as quickly as possible. Um, and uh, certainly for the family's perspective, able to, to mobilise as um, quickly as possible up into the, up into the parents' arms. They um, will have a catheter. They will have had the catheter placed, um, and I would maintain that catheter for five to seven days. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, bearing in mind that if they have you know, had a straightforward procedure with no um, uh, encroachment on the urethra, then usually uh, with removal of the catheter at five to seven days prior to going home. Um, in terms of dilatations, I know there's discussion around, uh, certainly even in the you know the UK experience that's been published on the sort of dilatations versus no dilatations. I can just describe what we do. You know, our our practice is to use dilatations uh, routinely, um, recognising that these can be quite traumatic for the family and the patients, and so we certainly have a very psychosocial approach to the introduction and the maintenance of anal dilatations. But I plan to start dilatations two to three weeks post-operatively or post-discharge, sorry, um, so that they are um, usually three to four weeks post their surgery by that stage. Yeah. Um, and we, we, our practice, um, and again, we can debate the merits of that, our practice is to um, do the first dilatation under general anaesthesia. Yeah. Um, it's a quick anaesthetic. Um, it gives us an opportunity to um, assess the healing of the neoanus. It gives an opportunity for both parents or carers to perform the first dilatation um, with the child um, relaxed yeah. um, and to teach them that process. Um, and then, as I said, with a psychosocial involvement as well to make sure that they're adequately supported. Um, we then uh, have a plan for... Um, uh, a sequential increase in dilator size yeah. every 10 to 14 days. Um, so I counsel the families that it's usually about a three-month process between first dilatation to when the child is ready for their closure of stoma. So for closure of stoma, we need them to be appropriately sized for their age um, and a well-healed uh, neo-anus, and we need to make sure that, their buddy, that the family are well aware of what buttock care involves yeah. so that as we can ready them for stoma um, closure that they are uh, understanding of the potential pitfalls um, following stoma closure. Cool. Um, so, so the important thing there is that there's no, there's not necessarily a fixed time frame for closing the stoma. It's based more on how successfully the dilatations are going and whether they're progressing along the, the, the plan that you put, put in place um, two weeks after discharge. Yeah, and that, and that they, you know, recognising that some children will have their dilat, you know, will start their dilatations at an older age because of various reasons. They, they yeah. come to us later, 
or they've had cardiac um, comorbidities, which have meant that they've had their uh, reconstructive surgery at a later stage, it therefore means that their dilator size might be slightly larger when we close their stoma. So it's just it's, it's tape, um, tailoring it to each of the patients. Yeah, brilliant. Um, okay, so before I move on to sort of the more long-term management of, of patients that have had an anorectal malformation repaired, I just wanted to touch on uh, the, the female defects as well. Um, uh, the, the most common one that we, that we normally see is a rectovestibular fistula. So um, if I go back to the beginning again, uh, just from a specific yep. point of view, um, how would your assessment of a, of a girl with a rectovestibular fistula differ from that of a male? Well, I think the vast majority of what we've discussed previously is the same. Yeah. The biggest issue is, is that child decompressing or not? Yeah. And so um, uh, for me, that means um, is, the, is the fistula large enough for the meconium to be passed um, uh, without um, uh, concern? And sometimes the, the <coughs> girls will require um, calibration or dilatation to be able to start that process. And once that thick meconium has passed um, and they're established onto feeds, be it breastfeeds or bottle fed with formula, that they um, are able to pass through without any issues. But if they are decompressing, then I am happy to wait and um, uh, get them home uh, with a view to then bring them back for their definitive surgery. But if they are not able to decompress, and, de and that might be because they are premature, because they've got IUGR, because they've got associated anomalies such as esophageal atresia with a tracheoesophageal fistula, so they've got other comorbidities within yeah. the factual spectrum. Um, if there are parental factors or geographical factors where I think that this child is not safe um, to sort of to go back and you know you know within a, within our state that might be eight ten hour drive away that the, that the families might live yeah. um, that those are important factors um, but the majority of the time a, a girl with a rectovestibular uh, fistula is able to decompress herself um, so that we then um, can plan to do her PSAR and I do that with a covering colostomy again you know I know that some people don't. <laughs> But I have seen enough um, patients over the years uh, that I've inherited who have not had a covering colostomy, who had a perineal breakdown and significant long-term sequelae. Yeah. That I would, that I, uh, in my practice, recommend a covering colostomy um, whilst they're recovering from their uh, PSAR. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So that's actually answered my my next question anyway. Um, but. And you've also talked about how the comorbidities influence your choice of management. So, so that's actually quite a good um, summary of, of the differences there. So thank you for that. Um, in terms of the long-term bowel management program, I think this is probably a, a, a longer answer. Um, um, but we can try and summarise it if, if that works for you. Um, yeah. So once the stoma has been closed, um, what is your program for follow-up? How do, you, how do you arrange to see them? So, so the following stoma closure, the most important thing in the first week to two weeks is, is um, management of the perineum. Yeah. And I start that from day zero or day one post-operatively, but with pre-operative counselling of the families about how important the perineal care is. 
because we need to set up a, a situation where the child, you know, if we go back to our boy with the recto bulbar, he's never had stool on his perineum. Yeah. By this stage, he's six, seven months of age. Um, it's a significant shock to the skin to be to be dealing with that. And so very active um, and aggressive management of perianal and perineal skin is important. From Again, I can only describe what I do in our practice and in our service, but I would, um, once the children have gone home, they would have follow-up calls from our service to make sure that they are progressing and that their skin care is, you know, their skin integrity is maintained. Yeah. And then we would see them at three to four weeks post-operatively. And then my view in the first three to four years of life is that within the limits of what we can do is that we see that child every three months. Yeah. Um, and that's that's an intensive follow-up program. I recognise that others don't do that, but I think that there is enough that changes in those first three to four years of life, be it um, transition from breast or bottle feeding to formula um, and, to, and to solids, transition to cow's milk, um, uh, and then the lead-up into toileting, the lead-up to... Um, uh, um, care outside the home, be it at um, uh, preschool or kinders. I think there are enough there, there are enough factors there that can influence g the GI uh, motility and, um, and health that, um, that by seeing these patients every three to four months, you know, that we can stay on top of things and, 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 re and be proactive as opposed to reactive. Yeah. In terms of the, you know, how I how I counsel the family and educate the families, and I've done this from the very you know, from the beginning of their care. But you know, as you know, we have these discussions over and over with families. Yeah. Is um, particularly as they get closer to toilet training, is the uh, where does it sit with regards to continence, both bowel and bladder? Yeah. And I'll only focus really on bowel because um, that's <coughs> what I know better. Um, but it comes back to that AR, the concept of the ARM index. Yeah. You know, what is what is their underlying anorectal malformation? What is their sacrum like? Yeah. Uh, what is their spine like? What's their you know, sacral ratio, which is yeah. sort of you know, meshed within that? And so I think that that um, is uh, uh, being able to use that to counsel the families in in relatively sort of generic way, but they, but the families understand that. But also recognizing that. You know, you know, we've all had children, you know, patients that we've looked at, uh, looked after, have had a pretty good ARM index. They've had a, a recto bulbar with a relatively normal spine and relatively normal sacrum, who've really struggled with their continence. Yeah. We've had children who've got a, you know, recto prostatic fistula with a, you know, that are missing S3, S4, S5, who seem to be continent. And so there's a bit of fortune in there. Yeah. And I know as surgeons, we like to think that. You know, it's all in our control, but that's ridiculous to think that's the case. You know, it, it's there's a lot there that is to chance, and and um, that's also uh, stressful for the families. You know, describing that to them that there is there's an element of chance there, and we don't quite know, um, you know, how that's going to play. But I think that the um, for the families, the biggest issue, the buttock care early on, is a real concern for them because I think if we don't establish that. Um, properly and the child gets into problems with their buttock care, then that can have um, significant impacts for weeks, months and sometimes years. Yeah. Um, so within that, does that mean that you have a fairly individualised protocol for each patient based on their ARM index or 
Um, is it a fairly generalised advice that you'd give to each patient? I think that the initial advice that's given to the families pre-operatively and even post a stoma closure is relatively, it's, it's targeted towards their type of malformation and their spinal anomaly. Yeah. But with the caveat that, that I don't know which way this is going to go and until we have trialled with toilet training and been through that process that we won't know, we won't have a great idea of what that's going to look like. And I think that if anybody <clears throat> says, okay, you've got this type of malformation with this type of spine, this type of sacrum, um, uh, um, and pretends that they know what that's going to mean for that patient as a three-year-old, a five-year-old, or as a 25-year-old, yeah. then I think that they... Yeah, they're they're off the tree. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, I think this is probably my last question, but um, you've talked a little bit about continence and constipation, but are there any specific challenges that you expect to encounter? When would you expect to encounter them, and what are your strategies for dealing with them? Well, again, I think it, it depends so much on the type of malformations with ARM, which is why it's, you know, interesting and challenging. Yeah. But again, if we go back to our recto-bulbar example, um, I anticipated that boy's got a relatively normal sacrum and spine, that, that we might need to manage his constipation more than his continence. Yeah. Um, and so the conversation will be geared towards that. So it's very much an individualised approach to that particular patient. If if that boy had a, uh, you know, subsequently found to have actually a rectoprostatic fistula and when we did his spinal imaging that it was abnormal, um, you know, tethered spine, etc., then the conversation would have started around the fact that, it, you know, the likelihood is he's going to be, you know, more prone to incontinence and that we might need to manage that. But, but again, you um, we won't really, we'll get a sense of that post the stoma closure because is he going two or three times a day or is he going 10 times a day? Yeah. What management does that mean? What response does he have to those different types of medical therapies? But the, but I would bring into that conversation with the rectoprostatic with a spine and a sacrum that's abnormal, I would bring into that conversation with our parents earlier the, the, the concept of rectal therapies versus appendicostomy, you know, yeah. and, and how that will influence and at what point we might bring that in but bearing in mind that they might not need any of that you know that he might be absolutely fine and is that a conversation you'd have early on before you know before you even think about actually having to do any of those things oh absolutely i would have that conversation um uh, post likely post stoma closure if the yeah. family didn't bring it up pre previously yeah. You know, I do have a sort of slight drip feed approach to, to these, you know, recognising that families can, can be very overwhelming and they can hold on to one piece of information and, and then that becomes so enormous in their mind that they're not able to move beyond that. Yeah. But it's why we've sort of created all our CPRS booklets as well so that the families have all that information, you know, online rather than having to sort of disappear into some Google, you know, whirlpool um, where they're where they're sort of lost. Yeah, cool. Okay, great. 
Um, thanks, Sebastian. That was that was excellent. Actually, that was a, that was a nice um, overview, a nice summary of, of the the major problems that I think you're you're going to find in your bowel management program, uh, and a and a nice um, way of assessing and managing um, both male and female patients with anorectal malformation. So thank you very much for that. Um, Pleasure. Great.